Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Last Sunday evening we had some friends round and outside our house we've got this kind of picnic table out in the garden. It was great, we were sitting outside, we ordered Domino's pizza together and we were chatting into the evening. It was great, we were catching up on stories and we were laughing together and the conversation got into some deep stuff as well and we were able to pray together. And You know there's something about a meal like that, a meal with friends that reminds you what's important in life. Thursday evening was at the CCM elders meeting and uh, as elders we only meet a few times a year and we always have food together when we do and we had this curry and it it was a glorious curry Uh, and that sets the context for the meeting and the stuff we were chatting about and praying into the the conversation flowed naturally because of that food together and because of that friendship because of that camaraderie over the table eating together reminds us what is important. Tolkien said if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold it would be a merrier world and he's right you know he's absolutely right. Over this last year and a half one of the things that I've missed most is the opportunities to eat with other people, the opportunities to have people round for meals, the opportunity to do church barbecues and shared meals, bring and share lunches, all that sort of stuff. We haven't been able to do nearly as much of that kind of thing as we would have liked. So I think this summer, as things are unlocking, one of the big themes of the summer is going to be eating together. It's going to be food and fellowship. And one of the things I love about my role here at CCM is I get to choose what we preach on. And I was thinking, what, what should we preach on? I wanted us to dig into the Gospels and to look at Jesus this summer, remind ourselves of some of the stories of what he said and did. But also I wanted to tap into this theme of meals and food and this summer of dining together. So we've got this series that we've put together from Luke's Gospel uh, called Meals with Jesus. And there's different times that Jesus was around the dinner table. Tim Chester said in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So many of the stories are in that kind of setting. And Jesus was dynamite at the dinner table. So over the summer, we're going to look at some of these stories and see what we can learn from what Jesus said and did over meals. And as well as that, we're going to combine it with having meals together. We've got the Meals for Six on this Sunday that we'll be doing, and we'll have other meals together as a church over the summer. We also want to draw the kids in, and we've got this uh, resource that the parents can, can grab and go through some of the same material with your kids. But today I'm going to start the series, and we're going to look at one of these stories that happens over the dinner table. And uh, I'm going to read it from Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. So uh, please return there if you've got a Bible with you, and I will read that now. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears 
and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, she gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. One of the things that I've noticed through uh, the time of homeschooling our kids is when they're looking at a story, there's a certain framework that the school teach them to use to break that story down, to look at the characters in the story, the setting of the story, and the problem presented in the story, and then what the solution to that problem is. And I, I thought as we look at this story from the Bible, it'd be good to use that framework to get our head into what happened here. Let's start by looking at the characters who Jesus engaged with on this occasion. There's two that I want to draw attention to. The first of them is called Simon, and he's a Pharisee. And when I say that word Pharisee, I think our instinct can be to boo. It's like the Pharisees are the, the pantomime villains of the gospel stories, aren't they? We know that because we've read the stories and we know there was antagonism between the Pharisees and Jesus. So as soon as we hear the word, our mind switches into this kind of way of reacting to them, like they're the baddies, like they're, they're the ones who will be on the wrong side of this. That's from our perspective in history. But at the time, that wasn't the way people reacted to the Pharisees. They didn't have that pantomime villain vibe about them. Now, where they came from was God's people had been uh, in exile. Then they returned to the land, but they, they were never really free in the land. There was always foreign occupiers over the land. Um, the, the people were still kind of living, not really obeying the law of God. And God's presence hadn't returned to the temple. And so the Pharisees really wanted God's presence back in the temple. They wanted God's people to be uh, free. They wanted God's people to be significant and influential and to have their own government, maybe restore the kingship and all of that. This is what they desired. And they, they saw all the Old Testament commands. You've turned from God. You're not following the law. And so that's why you went into exile. Let's say, look, the solution here is we really need to 
to follow the law. We need to obey the things that God has said. We need to take extra care to do that and not even come close to breaking the law. So they set up a code that tried to keep people from going anywhere near breaking the law. And so to people at the time, you'd think that the Pharisees were the good guys. They were, they were certainly the Bible guys. They were the ones who were digging into the word. They were the hungry for the presence of God guys. They wanted God to return in his presence to Israel. So if you'd have been there at the time and you knew that God was going to send his Messiah into Israel at that moment in time, it wouldn't be obvious at all that these would be the people who Jesus came into conflict with. You'd, you'd probably expect him to draw alongside them, to see them as his allies, the ones who he can build a team out of. These were the exemplars of true religion. It'd be much more likely for him to have conflict with the Roman occupiers or perhaps the, the sinful people who were not keeping the law. Now, all that said, there were issues with the Pharisees and we, we see it go sour. This story will exemplify why? But this, this Pharisee Simon, what's he doing? He's invited Jesus for dinner and his motive, really he wants to size him up. He wants to see what Jesus is all about because Jesus has been doing some stuff, getting a bit of a reputation. And so Simon wants to, to see what's going on. And he's coming in from a perspective of wanting to find a reason to dismiss it. You know, Jesus has already done some things that got the backs of the Pharisees up. He healed people on the Sabbath day, which um, they, they had uh, their rules around the Sabbath said that what Jesus was doing wasn't on, and yet he did it. He parted and associated with sinners and people who they would blame for uh, Israel being still in this kind of position of dominated by the Romans, people that they they need to repent, they need to straighten their life out. Jesus is partying with such people. So already he's got his doubts about Jesus. So I was reading a book recently called The Scout Mindset by Julia Gallef. And she says the way we approach something that we're trying to figure out is very much dictated by whether we've got a predisposition to want to believe it or want to disbelieve it, and we'll ask a different question. If, if we want to believe something, we just need one credible argument that gives us a, can I believe this? But if we don't want to believe it, then if there's even one credible argument against it, we, we go against it. It's like, then must I believe this? Do, do I have to go down this route? And that's certainly the way the Pharisees is like, must I believe in this guy? So he's invited him for dinner, and he's looking for a reason to dismiss Jesus. But Jesus accepts the invitation, and I think that's significant in and of itself. Jesus isn't uh, wanting to be out of relationship with Simon. He wants to eat with him. He wants to associate with him. Uh, and, and this is an important thing to factor in to our perspective uh, of Jesus. You know, the uh, Christian writer Beth Moore, she, she asks this, Do you have difficulty picturing Christ in this scene? Do you imagine him never fitting into a Pharisee's home? Remember, Christ is void of all prejudice. He was no more likely to stereotype all Pharisees than he was to stereotype all who were poor, blind or ill. Furthermore, he was just as anxious to save them from their sins. And the obvious difference was how anxious the individual was to be saved. So Jesus has accepted the invitation and gone to the house of Simon. 
Well, the next character in the story, uh, we're not told her name. Uh, she's called a woman, a, a woman of the city, a sinner. These are loaded terms. More than likely, she was a prostitute. Certainly, she was a sexually promiscuous woman. And uh, the culture uh, of Israel in those days didn't have the same sexually permissive uh, vibe that our culture has. Um, I mean, you just need to see in our culture the recent scandal around Matt Hancock having an affair in his office and everyone's up in arms. He's breaking the COVID rules that he wrote. And not many people are saying he's also breaking his marriage vows. The, the kind of assumed thing in high culture is what he's doing is his own business. It doesn't matter. There's no um, rules or there's no uh, right and wrong in terms of what you do. If, if you want to do it, do it. That's the way our culture is. Their culture, very, very different. The the biblical foundation of marriage as the context of sex was uh, was strongly held in that culture. Uh, one man, one woman, lifelong marriage as the context for sex. And so someone operating outside of that framework, it would mean instant public shame. And for this woman who would have repeatedly done so, she'd be living a life where people be looking at her, people be touching at her, people would not invite her into this kind of setting. She turned up, she wasn't invited. She actually got there before Jesus, she must have found out he was coming and she'd come prepared to anoint him with oil. Now, Maybe the exact way it played out probably wasn't what she had in mind. I, I would imagine she thought that Simon would do the customary greetings and then she'd maybe anoint his head, anoint his hands, something like that. But she'd certainly come prepared. She, she'd come with this ointment that she wanted to anoint Jesus with. So it's a very deliberate thing on her part. So she must have already come across Jesus. She must have in some way been impacted by him and his ministry. Uh, in fact, Ibn al-Taib, who was a commentator writing in 11th century Baghdad, he said there is no doubt that the woman previously heard the preaching of the Christ and was deeply moved by it and believed and repented and was anticipating a chance to make visible her thanks to the Christ. So that's what she was doing. So they're the characters in this story. Let's look at the setting. Now, the setting, as we've said, is a meal. It's at Simon's house. And every culture will have different customs of greeting. When you go to someone's house or when someone comes to your house, there are certain things that are normal. There are certain things that are expected. So in our culture, for example, you, you go to someone's house, you knock on the door, the person will open the door, then they'll invite you in and they'll offer to take your coat for you. They'll show you to a seat. They will um, offer to make you a cup of tea. And you know what? I I get really um, uncomfortable when these things don't happen. And I'm not the only one. I think anyone would. When you go into someone's house and they don't offer you a seat and they don't take your coat, you're kind of standing there. What do I do now? Do I just stay in the hallway? Do I leave my coat on? I, I, am I okay to go through and take a seat? And, and you know, if I go to someone's house and I don't get offered a cup of tea, oh my goodness, I'm fuming. In fact, if I just get offered instant coffee, I'm fuming. You know, there, there are certain cultural things that are normal and that are expected. And we all know them. They're the rules of the game if you invite somebody round to your house. Well, their culture had their own customs. They weren't the same as ours. It wasn't about taking someone's coat and offering them 
a cup of tea, but there, there were things that were the, the done things. One of them was you, know, you, you sorted out your guests getting their feet washed. You know, they were kind of walking in sandals, sweaty feet, dusty floor. People's feet were pretty gross. And so if you're rich enough, you might have a servant wash their feet for them, or maybe you'd do it yourself. Or at the very least, you'd offer them a bowl of water to wash their own feet. It was customary to greet your guest with a kiss and to anoint their head with oil. And Simon had done none of those things. As Jesus had walked in, it was the equivalent of the day of leaving him there in the hallway with his coat on, no cup of tea. This was a deliberate humiliation. You know, Jesus wasn't the only guest, but he was the only one put to shame in this way. In treating Jesus like this, Simon has very deliberately communicated a lack of respect and a lack of honour. And remember, this is a, a shame on a culture. So this wouldn't be an oversight on his part. He's saying to all the guests, I don't really respect this guy. It's like a slap in the face to Jesus. And yet despite this lack of hospitality that's been shown to him, Jesus reclined at the table. And the way the tables were then, it wasn't like now we'd sit on a chair at a high table. The table would be down low and there were these like sofa-like things that you'd recline on. And you'd take kind of a pose and then the next person would come on and your feet would be sticking out behind you. And that's the way it happens. And Jesus, despite not having had his feet washed, despite not having been greeted with a kiss or having had his head anointed, he goes and uh, takes his place reclining at the table. Now, we look to the characters and the setting. Let's talk next about the problem. And this is where it gets interesting, because depending on which of these characters you ask, they would have a very different perspective on what the problem is. So let's start by thinking about what's the problem from the perspective of this woman. And just kind of think about this scene from her point of view. She's turned up to honour Jesus, this one uh, who's, who she's found salvation in, who she's found grace in, she's heard his preaching, she's been blown away. Her life has been changed, so she wants to publicly honour him. And what she sees when she gets there is a stunning act of dishonour, a besmirchment upon the one that she came to pray. Simon's rudeness and lack of welcome that he's shown to Jesus are jarring to this woman. Now, she can't go through with her plan to anoint his head or to anoint his hands. Uh, Simon hasn't done the greetings. And now Jesus is reclining at the table. To, to get to his head and his hands, you'd have to clamber across all the other guests. And it would be utterly inappropriate. But his feet are behind him. His feet that haven't been washed. His feet that haven't been cleaned. His feet that are still showing the signs of the shame with which Simon has treated him. And seeing this, something inside her is absolutely broken. She's weeping. She's weeping a lot of tears. And the solution hits her. She can use those tears to wash his feet, to do what Simon didn't do, to correct this dishonour, to put right this wrong that Simon has done. Think how many tears she must have shed in order to wash the dirt from his feet with them and then that's what she did and then she took her hair and she used that to dry them and in that culture women would tend to cover their hair wearing it out in the open like that was a symbol of the life she'd lived it was a symbol of the shame in which she had lived and yet she uses even this symbol of her own shame to dry 
his feet and then use the ointment to anoint his feet. This is an extravagant act, isn't it? It's an act that's flowing from a heart that wants to honour the Saviour and that didn't care what anyone else thought. Willing to bear shame, willing to be exposed, willing to have the, the glares and the touch of everyone else in the room. There was no holding back. There was no asking, what will people think of me? She poured herself out. Uh, I came across a, a, an article uh, on this passage by Tia Kim, who's part of the Desiring God team. She said this, in sharp contrast, here was this who and what sort of woman bending over Jesus' soiled feet, washing them with her tears and gently wiping his feet with her hair. After pouring precious ointment on his feet, her worship overflowed in reverent kisses to his feet. And you know, I think the most significant word in that quote is worship. That's exactly what she was doing, isn't it? She was expressing her worship to Jesus. It makes us ask a question, doesn't it? What does worship look like to you? I think it's quite a profound challenge because think of other areas of life where we may show extravagance. You know, the other night there was the uh, the football, wasn't there? England versus Germany. And a friend of mine posted on social media a, a little video that had been captured by his, his neighbour's doorbell cam. Uh, and it's of him running up and down the street, charging with his hand in the air after the final whistle. He was on his own. He didn't know that he was being recorded. And then the neighbours WhatsApped him with this little video of him doing it. He couldn't help himself. Something had just bubbled up in, in him with such joy that he had to do that. Uh, or I, the other day I was with Elsie and I suggested a game of hide and seek. And at the idea of this, just such energy had built up in her. She was physically jumping up and down. She couldn't contain the joy that she felt at that idea of playing hide and seek. What about without worship? Is there such a joy that we can't hold it in? You know, sometimes I think we can fool ourselves to think that our worship is extravagant, isn't it? Particularly if we're more charismatic minded. I raise my hands. I sometimes clap. Of course my worship is extravagant. And yet those things, can't they just become routine for us as well? Are we ever moved so much that we can't help but kneel or fall on our face before the Lord to shout, to dance, to jump? And not doing any of this for show, not doing it because, well, I'm on the front row and I, I, if people don't see me doing it, how, how will they know? So not that, but just because the joy of the Lord has filled us and we can't help it. And not just in our worship some worship, but in all of life, extravagance in our giving, extravagance in our serving, extravagance in speaking his praises. How extravagant is your worship? Does it ever reach a point where someone would say to you, what the heck are you doing? Because that was the case for this woman. Her worship just overflowed in a way that nobody could explain it. Nobody would say that's what it should be. It just came out of her in this way. It's like in the Old Testament, David dancing before the Lord. How'd you get to this point? You can't conjure this up. You can't think, I'm going to do some more extravagant things in worship. You don't set this as a target. What you do is you set your heart and your mind onto the gospel of grace and you lean into that and you let that fill you with an inexpressible joy. 
So that's the problem from the perspective of the woman. Let's talk now about what the problem was from Simon's perspective. Now, a little bit, the problem was what the woman was doing here, although he probably expected that of a woman like this. It would be par for the course with her, wouldn't it? The bigger problem for him is how Jesus is responding to what she's doing. And I guess you can have a little bit of sympathy for him. Um, imagine a travelling evangelist came to town and was doing an evangelistic crusade for the whole city. And so some of the church leaders invite him around for dinner, have a few of the guests. And all through dinner, there's a woman there and, uh, you know, she, she can't take her hands off his feet. And, you know, she's a bit scantily dressed. You know, people would be looking at what what is this? You can have some sympathy for that. But remember, uh, of course, that Simon, his whole purpose of the dinner had been to, to scope Jesus out and find a reason to reject him. Well, he certainly has one now. Let's think what Jesus should have done in, in Simon's eyes. From his perspective, what should Jesus have done here? Well, here's what Kenneth Bailey said. At every turn in the stories about and from Jesus, it's important to ask, in the light of the cultural world of his day, what was Jesus expected to say or do? In this case, it's easy. He was expected to be embarrassed over the touching that he was receiving from the woman and shocked that she had exposed her hair. Everyone in the room would assume that he would instinctively judge these acts as beyond the range of acceptable behaviour and reject her. Now Simon doesn't actually articulate this, he doesn't say it out loud, but it's one of those moments, I wonder if you have them, where it's clear to everyone in the room that's exactly what's going on in his head, it was certainly clear to Jesus. You know, we can all do this, can't we? We sit there internally fuming that something isn't being done quite right. That something's wrong. You know, I do this if someone pushes into a queue in front of me. I, I'm too polite to actually go and challenge them. But something in me doesn't want to let go, so I just give them the eyes. You know, the, the kind of, if my eyes were lasers, they'd burn through the back of your head kind of look. Maybe it's in this very area, worship, that we've been talking about that the music isn't quite right the the contributions that have been brought from from the congregation they're not being done quite right communion's been done wrong i'd do it different to that and when we see something not quite done the way we want it can take us out of that place of worship and into that kind of just silent resentment this woman's extravagant act that simon would have expected jesus rejected no, Jesus accepted the acts. He knew that to reject this form of her worship and extravagance, where she's laying it all out, where she's willing to be utterly humiliated to honour him. Jesus knew that if he rejected this, it would be to reject her. And so he accepted her worship. And with that came the scorn of Simon and his friends. You know, I think one of the big dangers when we think about the Pharisees is that we tend to think the Pharisees today are other people. It's that church down the road. They're more traditional than us, so they must be the Pharisees. You know what? All of us have this danger. For, for Simon, what he's doing is he's critiquing the, the worship that this woman is offering, and he's judging it, and so he can't join in and worship himself. Do we ever critique the worship that other people have to offer? 
If only their worship was more enthusiastic, if only it was more reverent or more participatory, we could fill in whatever word we want. When we're critiquing the worship of others rather than joining them, worshipping at the throne, we've got the same heart as the Pharisee, haven't we? It isn't bad to think about the form the worship should take. You know, the Bible does have plenty to say about that. But there's a line where we become so focused on the externals of what we think worship should be like, we can miss God doing something because it's not packaged the way we think it should have been. And that's Simon here. Well, of course, the lovely thing in this passage is that we hear Jesus' own take on what the problem was. And he tells a story to communicate this. And in this story, there are uh, two people who both owed money to a moneylender. One of them 500 denarii, one of them 50. And the exact numbers don't really matter. What's significant is that both of them are unpayable. Neither of them can pay their debt. And by talking about debt, Jesus is using that as a, as a metaphor for, for sin. That our sin has run up a debt before God. We're guilty and we need to be forgiven. And we can't make amends for our own sin. Now, this was certainly true for the woman, wasn't it? The life that she lived was full of sin. When they called her a sinner, they weren't speaking something that was untrue. She'd, she'd sinned. She'd done many sinful things. It was also, we've seen clearly in this passage, true for Simon, the rudeness that he showed, the lack of hospitality that he showed. That's sin. It's true for each of us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And if we start to compare with others, if we say, well, Maybe I've done some things wrong, but I'm not as bad as that person. They've really sinned. I've not done what they've done. I'm not as bad as Hitler, is something that people say. But they, that's just comparing the size of a debt when the significant thing is we can't pay the debt. It's unpayable. When we compare with others, we've totally missed the point. And so that's our problem. The problem for the woman, the problem for Simon, the problem for you, the problem for me, according to Jesus, is this unpayable debt. And the solution? It's total forgiveness. In his story, both debts are written off. So he cancelled the debt of both of them. And then he asks which of them will love him more. And the woman exemplifies exactly the answer to this question. Well, the one who's had the big debt forgiven will love him more. The extravagance of the sin that she previously lived in is now matched by the extravagance of her devotion the one who's cancelled her debt. She's been forgiven much and so she loves much. Church father Ambrose, uh, he said this, only someone who had forgiven much and therefore loved much could anoint Jesus's feet as the sinful woman did. Simon's response, it didn't match the same pattern. It didn't look like someone who's had a debt written off and so is grateful. It's like he didn't get it. Maybe he didn't quite externalise his depravity in the same way she did. He certainly didn't externalise any devotion. His cold response is illustrative of a lack of a perceived need for forgiveness. I wonder if we can live in this reality. I think we, as Christians, often talk about forgiveness and sin. and We know it in theory. But is this our lived reality? Do we get it that, but for the grace of God, we have nothing to bring to the table? We cannot contribute Anything that can make up for the sin that we owe. It's only Jesus that's done that. It's free grace and only free grace. 
You know, as I read a story like this, it, it, it makes me think and it, it makes me ask the question, like, which am I more like? Which do I see myself in? Uh, is it more Simon or is it more the woman? And if I'm honest, I think the answer is I'm somewhere in between the two. I can certainly see in myself some of the traits of this woman. I can certainly see in myself some of the traits of Simon as well. I wonder if you see the same when you look at your own life. And maybe some days I'm a little bit more one and some days I'm a little bit more the other. But this is a challenge to us, isn't it? It's a challenge to step out of this cynical judgmentalism and to step into this life of having received free grace and expressing it back to God in extravagant worship. We're going to worship now. Why don't you mull on the grace of God, the free gift that you've received, and then pour it back to him in praise.